It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. I'm Patty Roberts, the host, and I'm speaking to you from St. Mary's University School of Law in San Antonio, Texas. And today I have with me Jacob H. Ruxby. He is the Dean of Gonzaga Law School, a position he has held since 2018. He's also president of the Gonzaga Law School Foundation, professor of law and leadership studies, and an IP optimization strategist, which I don't know what that is, so I'll have to ask what that is. <laughs> I'm also joined by Gail Hammer, and she directs the Lincoln LGBTQ Plus Rights Clinic of the Center for Civil and Human Rights. She teaches litigation and also children's law classes. So welcome to you both. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Well, happy new year. We are into 2022 now. And um, I'd love for you, Dean Ruxby, to tell us a little bit about your path to the deanship. You've been there a few years now, a little bit more than COVID period. Um, tell us how you, you ended up at Gonzaga. Sure. Well, I started in 2018, which seems like forever ago because it was before the pandemic. And it's been just a wonderful experience uh, for me. I had been teaching on the faculty at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh prior to accepting this role. And it was my first time um, living out West, which has been a, a dream and a hope of uh, my wife and I for some time. And Gonzaga was for me kind of a, a homecoming back to Jesuit education. I had gone to a Jesuit high school um, in Indianapolis where I grew up and really was taken by the educational philosophy of the Jesuits. And so it's great to be able to work at a law school that embraces that philosophy and lives, uh, lives that mission every day. So that was in large part what drew me uh, to the position. That's wonderful. Um, I feel similarly with our Catholic institution, not Jesuit, but um, Marianist, as you may know, and uh, the mission and the values are such a wonderful confluence with what I prioritized in my legal career and my legal teaching. So um, also very happy to be at a, a faith-based institution. Now, um, I you've talked about being dean and mentioned that you're president of the foundation and obviously a professor, but what is this IP optimization strategist position? That's intriguing. I know IP is one of your specialties. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So my background is in uh, IP. Uh, really, IP litigation was where I started out after law school. I worked with McGuire Woods in Richmond, Virginia, and was part of their IP litigation team. Um, when I moved into full-time teaching, I uh, taught torts. I taught intellectual property law courses, higher education law courses. Um, but I think after about three years of being on the full-time faculty, I found uh, that I was missing that connection to practice. So I joined when I was in Pittsburgh, um, a firm Cohen and Grigsby, now Denton's Cohen and Grigsby of counsel, um, where I had an opportunity to kind of start again my practice of law. And I, I remember actually, I was sworn into the Pennsylvania bar 
um, with recent graduates who I had taught. They're saying, hey, what are you doing here? Um, so I, I saw <laughs> at that time, uh, I think the value that can come in the classroom from having faculty who maintain a tie to teaching. And, you know, I actually didn't do a clinic when I was in law school. Um, so I, I learned most of my, you know, uh, everything that I, I know about practice from practicing. It didn't really start in law school. It's more theoretical and, and doctrinal courses and that kind of thing in law school. So when I moved out to Gonzaga, I, after a couple of years, again, felt the need to have that tie to, uh, to the bar. And so I, um, in 2020, became a member of the Washington State Bar and then um, was asked to join a firm as the IP optimization strategist at FIG1 Patents, which basically means I, um, I have a few client matters that I assist them with, um, transactional matters and trademark matters that, um, that one, don't take up much of my time and two, don't uh, conflict with, with my other day job, uh, my primary day job. So. Uh, but it's it's been for me a, a nice thing in a in a way to to tie into the legal community more deeply by maintaining a law license and also having an active practice. Absolutely, and it keeps your finger on the pulse of what your students need to learn and and what your law school might focus on. So that's terrific. I applaud you for being able to do both jobs. The one job's enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. I know that you are a champion of diversity, um, and one of the things uh, that you're very proud of at Gonzaga is um, that you started, uh, your law school started an LGBTQ plus rights legal clinic, which was by itself um, a little bit unusual because there aren't many uh, across the country that focus on the population. But as a Catholic law school, I find that particularly intriguing. And I, so please tell us how that came about, and then we can learn a little bit more about the clinic. Sure. And, you know, this is, this is for us a really signature offering of our law school. Um, it situates within our Center for Civil and Human Rights, which is one of our flagship academic centers here at Gonzaga Law School. Um, we focus on the education of the whole person, and we believe in the, in the dignity of all individuals. And so I think it's really a natural uh, extension of our mission and identity as a Jesuit Catholic humanistic institution. Uh, this cl clinic came about after a series of conversations with an alumnus, Joe Lincoln, who is a graduate of our undergraduate uh, program. He's uh, an engineer by background. And this is a person through a mutual friend of the law school, a graduate of the law school, I got to know, and um, we developed a really warm relationship. He did not at any point think, gosh, I really want to start a law clinic uh, until uh, we got to know each other a little bit more and he learned more about where we were headed as a law school, what some of our goals were, and, um, and then really based upon his own experiences in philanthropy saying that uh, giving money to legal organizations, legal, legal aid organizations can affect change, but sometimes the impact is uh, more diffuse and it may not serve an educational purpose or goal. You're really supporting uh, an institution that you may not be as familiar with. He was familiar with Gonzaga University because he's on our board of regents. He's an alum. Uh, he knows many graduates and is friends with many graduates of, of the undergraduate campus and also the law school. So one day we were having a conversation and 
uh, he was curious about whether uh, the law school could do work that was similar to the kinds of work uh, that the Lavender Rights Project and other organizations that he was familiar with did. And I said, well, yeah, we could. Um, we're not currently though. And let me talk to you about our clinics and, and how those are, are structured and how they operate. So he became really smitten with the idea of providing uh, funding for a clinic to get off the ground that would provide services in this area, but also educate students in the, in the, in the process and really uh, allow them to become interested in the subject area and to develop expertise uh, such that they could go on in their own careers to pursue this work, either primarily as part of their practice or uh, secondarily as perhaps part of a pro bono or public service undertaking to whatever their other practice area may be. So we have already seen that. We knew uh, in starting this that there would be great uh, student interest and there has been. The clinic has been oversubscribed in terms of, of applicants. We have more people than we can take each semester. And as my colleague, Professor Hammer will tell you, the work is out there as well. The need uh, for clients and representation in this area uh, is profound. And so that's kind of how it got off the ground. It's been really exciting to see. And one of the things from, um, from my vantage point, I mean, this is just a win, win, win all around. Um, it, it starts a new clinic, it excites students, it helps clients, uh, but it's also helping to underscore to the community at large who we are and what we value as an institution. And that alone has immense signaling value in terms of uh, signaling to prospective students what kind of institution we are. And we've heard from, um, from several and uh, they said, you know, I had options as to where I wanted to go for law school or where I could go. But the fact that Gonzaga Law School, a Catholic institution has this LGBTQ plus rights clinic, that to me uh, sent a message and it's why I'm here. And whether that student will go on to be a part of the clinic or not, um, that's really, really powerful for us. So we're excited by the work and excited to share with you a little bit more about what the clinic's doing. I love that. I have so many questions now, so I'm very glad you brought Professor Hamer along as well. Um, so tell us a little bit about the start and what kind of work are you doing and what are the students getting to grapple with on behalf of their clients? So many things. They're grappling with trying to use the legal system to benefit people who have not traditionally been advantaged by the legal system. The law has not worked well for LGBTQ plus people. Um, so there is an element of helping to try to build trust, try to build uh, um, some kind of faith in the legal system. I have to apologize for the noise in the background. Uh, there's a parrot here that's that's uh, adding editorial comment. So, well, you have to tell us now what the parrot's name is so that we know that that is also a guest on this episode. Ah, yes, okay, that's, it's Coco, an African gray parrot. Oh, wonderful. Um, yes. Um, so the, the students, have so many opportunities to learn things, you know, besides the topics that are presented by the cases that we work on. Um, in addition to 
navigating, working with clients, basic problem solving, legal analysis, etc. They are also learning about allyship because no one person can fit every piece of what's captured in the LGBTQ plus um, description. So learning about allyship and what it means to be an effective ally, which is in many ways fundamental to being an effective attorney. Absolutely. So what kind of work are they doing? They are, so it's kind of a hybrid clinic in that we represent clients in their individual cases, and then we also work on policy issues in a variety of different ways. So the cases that we've had um, range from things that might be an issue for anyone to things that are very particular to our client population. So we've had a number of cases with helping people with anti-harassment protection orders from abusive neighbors. Um, We help with wills, powers of attorney. Uh, We've had an employment discrimination case, a personal injury case, um, a couple of things dealing with discrimination in various forms, uh, changes to identity documents when that's appropriate for a person's identity, um, a discrimination claim against a county jail, um, and just a variety of other kinds of cases that, again, can come up for anybody. Do you find that most of your clients are from your geographic area or do you get calls from all over the country? We do get calls from all over the country. In terms of legal representation, though, we're only working within Washington. And you mentioned policy issues. I was very glad to hear that that's part of the work because, of course, the systemic changes are what is needed long term. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the policy issues your students have been exploring with you thus far? Sure. Um, We did kind of a deep dive into the use of gay panic and trans panic criminal defenses um, for the Williams Institute of UCLA. Um, We have participated in... um, you know, providing research and writing support for attorneys with various kinds of cases. Um, Researching, for example, uh, how a parent being supportive of their child's experience, uh, their child's maybe questioning what their gender identity is, et cetera, um, the effect of that on particularly a teenager's well-being, a teenager's mental health and well-being. We have looked into and provided parts of briefs for attorneys or other support for cases they're working on for the standards of healthcare for transgender people who are incarcerated. Um, 
you're also collaborating with a group of other attorneys who are working to defend Washington's conversion therapy ban. Washington has uh, banned conversion therapy with quotes around it, which attempts to change youth, uh, attempts to change their sexual orientation or gender identity. The problem with conversion therapy is that first, it doesn't work. And second, it's extremely harmful um, in terms of suicide rates, in terms of depression, it's extremely harmful. Uh, so that the statute, the bans conversion therapy has been challenged here in Washington. The case was dismissed. There was an appeal to the Ninth Circuit and it's going back, uh, well, the, the exact future is uncertain, but we're participating in helping write briefs for that particular case. Well, that sounds like really important work that your students are engaging in. And I noticed in your background that you have um, directed an Indian law clinic, general practice, domestic violence clinics, and of course, under the, the um, clinic of the center or the LGBTQ plus rights clinic is part of the Center for Civil and Human Rights. Um, was this a new area of law for you once the clinic was funded? Did you have to learn it from scratch or did you were you already doing work like this in your other work? I already was doing some work like this in my other work. Um, so it wasn't a brand new area for me, but it wasn't a main focus for me before. If and I can jump in on that, actually, yeah. um, I, I think we have really benefited from Gail's expertise, not only as a lawyer, but just in her ability to know our community so well. I think in standing up a clinic such as this one, it's really important uh, to do it right from the start and to not have a false start. And uh, we knew that that was a, a possibility, given that there would be scrutiny, there would be attention for this uh, clinic given its subject matter. We are at Gonzaga located in the inland Northwest. Um, we're the largest city between Minneapolis and Seattle, but most of the surrounding areas are rural. And so we have in Spokane, although uh, a predominantly, um, I think, progressive community, um, in, in quick driving distance, you know, we have a, a variety of different opinions in our populace. So we felt like it was important to start with someone who already was in our community, understood our community, had respect, had respect and credibility. Um, and that person has been Gail and she has been just awesome in leading this. That's terrific. I'm so glad. Um, and you're exactly right. It's those relationships in the community that are so pivotal to, to getting clients to be willing to trust you, to to call the clinic, and then of course, uh, the courts and the attorneys in town that you're gonna work with. Um, so you mentioned that it's an interesting area with different viewpoints in the inland Northwest. Um, I'm certain that is true. We have some very different viewpoints depending on where you are in Texas, as I'm sure you read about. Um, but going back to your being a Catholic law school, did you get any resistance um, on having this clinic at a, at a Catholic law school? Great question. And I should 
start by mentioning just how strong and steadfast our president and our provost and our board of trustees have been in supporting this clinic from the get-go. I remember when I first broached the concept with our president and provost, uh, neither one batted an eye. They said, well, we should do it, absolutely. I mean, if, if the law school thinks it's educationally valuable and a, a donor uh, who we know and respect and admire is behind this project, and we know that it's going to do good in the community, why would we not do this? Bravo and, to them. Know, That's great. Really? Yeah, truly. And um, there was an immediate stress test because our local bishop uh, issued a statement that some read as being um, against the clinic or having concerns or questions about the clinic. So um, right away, uh, we had to be in a posture of explaining what it was that we were going to be doing, what the goals of the clinic were, in fact, and it, it made, you know, it made a splash. It got some attention and it ruffled some feathers in some communities and quarters. So, um, but at the end of the day, we went through with the project and here we are almost two years in with many, many success stories to point to. Um, so I think, you know, there, there are a variety of different uh, clinics that, that institutions can have if we think more broadly in the clinical legal education space. And, and, and often they bring the institution into uh, awareness and public dialogues. Uh, I think that's okay. I think that means that we're doing something important. I think that means that we're, uh, we're where we should be as an institution, where, where the people are, where the legal issues are. And that's not gonna please everyone, but that's part of what clinical legal education is all about. I couldn't agree more. And um, you mentioned earlier that it, it helps your law school signal to others, all stakeholders, um, you know, what you stand for and, and what you're willing to, um, to advocate for, who you're willing to advocate for. So I, I applaud you and your institution um, for jumping into this and to the donor who um, saw the, the need, recognized the need and was willing to fund it. Uh, that's so critical. And if we can veer off from that for a moment, um, I just would be remiss as being any sort of a podcast host if I didn't ask about your Wine Institute, which <laughs> that's not something we commonly uh, read about at law school. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So we have the Gonzaga University Wine Institute, which offers a certificate in the legal and business aspects of wine. And to our knowledge, we are the only law school in the country uh, to offer such a program. It is uh, primarily online. We have a variety of modules where students can enroll in the certificate program, learn from experts on niche topics within the wine industry related to the business and legal aspects. And then in order to earn the certificate, they not only have to complete the modules and the, and the assignments associated with the modules, but they also have to participate in an immersion event on site at a winery where they learn firsthand from winemakers and others in the industry. So um, we launched this right as COVID was beginning, unfortunately, which uh, meant that some of our early immersion events had to be online. Uh, but we were able to do an in-person immersion just this fall in Napa Valley uh, with a variety of, of winemakers and experts. 
And we had our first graduates receive their certificates at that event. So it was really neat to see. Um, we, we hope to build up the, the largest library of uh, educational content related to the legal and business aspects of wine. It makes sense for us as an institution, as a private institution, we can do this more easily than our public counterparts. Uh, but Washington State is the second largest uh, producer of grapes in uh, the country. And so for those who have not visited our region, uh, a lot of great wines come from here, not too far from Walla Walla, um, and also tons of wineries uh, north of, of Seattle and the Woodenville area. So it's, it's really part of our, our uh, heritage as a region and as a state, uh, this focus on agriculture and, and winemaking in particular. So we felt like it was a natural fit and we saw an opportunity and, and we've taken it. Uh, the Institute is directed by our colleague, Professor Jessica Kaiser. And she's just done a wonderful job in standing this up and, and getting it going and getting the momentum behind it. That's really exciting. And I tell you what, Dean Rexby, between the Wine Institute and I read you're doing an alumni trip to see the Northern Lights. I mean, I have to talk to you about how to run a law school in a really fun way. <laughs> a lot of cool things you have going on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I conclude all my episodes asking guests if they will opine on the future of legal education, what is likely to happen in the coming decade, in your opinion, and if it's different, what should happen uh, in the coming decade. And I'm going to save you, Dean, till the, the end, but I wanted to ask you, Professor, first, with your clinic and the issues that you have been focused on um, with the Lincoln LGBTQ plus rights clinic. Um, can you say specifically to the LGBTQ plus population, um, both their legal needs and also just as potential students and attorneys later, what do you predict for the coming year uh, as far as the increased um, diversity of the bar and uh, the bench and also um, opportunities for legal services for this group? I think that all of those things are going to increase. The, as people become generally more knowledgeable about the community that we serve, I think that there will be growing acceptance and a growing knowledge of and acknowledgement of the fact that there are so many ways of being human in the world. I think that there will be increasing acceptance. Um, and I think that more members of that community will begin to see the law as a tool that works in their favor instead of against them. Um, I think that I mean, already, in the, just in the time that I've taught in law schools, more and more people who are, you know, general law student age know people who are LGBTQ+. Um, and that, that didn't used to be the case. It used to be regarded as something much more unusual. So I see that. And what, what I think of as an evolution. Well, I think you're, the work that you're doing is, is groundbreaking in legal education and um, that I would imagine that there will be other law schools that replicate that work, other members of the bar that do it. And uh, 
and that, as you said, people will become more knowledgeable about the legal issues that are facing the community. Yes. Dean Ruxby, do you have predictions regarding what's likely to happen in the, the broader sphere of legal education in the coming decade? Sure, I uh, agree with my colleague. I think her comments are, are spot on. Um, in terms of really law schools becoming much, much better uh, at embracing all humans within the profession. Uh, this is not only you know, the, the, the right thing to do um, from you know, uh, an educational standpoint, it's the right thing to do from a moral standpoint and it's so long overdue in our profession. I would say that at the same time, there's going to be, there already, we're already seeing increased focus on making law school more humane and more inclusive, also long overdue. Um, we probably all have stories from our experiences in law school where we felt less than human. We felt dehumanized by the system or the process, and we are still dealing with a lot of the vestiges of uh, apparatuses that were built up to perpetuate older ways of thinking about the law and what it means to educate. So I'm excited at Gonzaga that we've already taken some steps, I think leadership steps in, in ridding ourselves, ridding our systems of pieces of the infrastructure that no longer serve our students. Things like conditional scholarships, things like class rankings down to a, a, a number for every certain person in the class. Um, I, I would like to see us, and I think schools are going to be looking at things like uh, mandatory grade curves and the sort of forced sense that everyone must fall on a bell curve distribution. Um, that really runs counter to, I think, how we should envision uh, a legal education as a reaffirming, humanizing experience, not one that has to be marked by, by stress or degradation or that, that uh, jeopardizes one's health or well-being. Uh, at a Jesuit institution like ours, focusing on the whole person really means inside and outside the classroom. And we have to seriously examine some of these sort of inherited systems that may be contrary or in tension with that value to be the inclusive institution and, and profession that we want to be. I also think that the ABA's uh, intended focus on professional identity formation is going to be a very positive step uh, for all of us because that's really what law school is about. We're a professional school. Um, we have knowledge to impart, but really it's about how do we start to think of ourselves as professionals within this profession called the legal profession? What does it mean to be a lawyer? And uh, not just doing that as a, if we have time or after class kind of thing, but really part and parcel of everything that we do. Uh, I'm excited by that, by that development. I am as well, and, and I hope you're right that this uh, becomes a more humane system uh, over the course of the coming decade, and uh, certainly you are being a leader at Gonzaga, and um, I'm very proud that, that you're doing it. So thank you so much for joining us, and uh, look forward to learning more about your clinic and the other exciting opportunities in the future. Thank you, Patty. We appreciate the time and the opportunity to talk with you. Yes, thank you. This has been another episode of Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. 
EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience Podcast Network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.